EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, this is it. Once again, it's time for Inside EMS. It's the Chris and Kelly Show. I don't care what he says, and I know what he's going to say. Here he is, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? You're, you're, you got precognition now? You know what I'm going to say? Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you think you know me that well, man? Yeah. Yeah, I think oh. I do. I think I do, man. I think, uh, I think we're simpatico. And, uh, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we're kind of, uh, I think we're connected at the hip kind of, yeah, we're yin and yang. You're the peanut butter, to my jelly, the that's peas right. to my carrots. That's, that's it. it. The Tom to your oh, Jerry. That's right. That's, that's right. I'm Jerry. <laughs> so I had an interesting thing happen to me. I was, uh, yeah. maybe, maybe as a Southern person, you can kind of help me out with this, but I was driving down South. I won't mention the state and, uh, you know, I'm going at a good clip and it's a two, two lane road. And I come over this little hill, and I actually hit a rooster. And I felt really horrible about it, and I pulled over. Of course, there was nothing I could do to save the rooster. And I looked, and there was a farmhouse. So I said, well, I better go and just maybe just say something to these people. You know, this this has all the makings of the setup of a really bad joke. <laughs> and uh, so I, I go up to the farmhouse, and I said, ma'am, I said, that's my car right there. And I... I think I need to replace your rooster. And she said, well, suit yourself. The chickens are out back. So I just didn't understand. Did she she really expect me? I don't know. These Southern people, man, I don't get it. I don't get it. Oh, well, um, it would have been better, better set up if you'd have run over a sheep. Yeah, I don't know. That's a whole that's a whole different joke that I don't even want to get to. But uh, well, you were saying hit a rooster, and I was like, I'm thinking, well, that's item number six thousand four hundred and seventeen in Kelly's list of euphemisms. <laughs> okay, well, I don't want to talk about that, but it was a good joke, and I don't care what you say. But so you know, Kelly, one of the things we always do is we try to yeah. bring people shows that we find uh, or they may find interesting. And you had a great discussion <laughs> with a peer. Yeah. I'm going to kick it to you. I think we need as much time as we can in this topic because I think it's a great one. And uh, go ahead and set it up for us. Yeah, I I had an excellent conversation with uh, a friend named Mike Smertka. Mike's a a former firefighter, paramedic, and now a uh, physician and and, uh, surgeon. And uh, he was a faithful listener to the podcast. And he was talking about uh, one of our our recent episodes where we – we discussed some uh, some the actions of some EMTs uh, in, in a call, uh, and uh, they were accused of of uh, um, not protecting a patient's dignity when they uh, extricated her from the aircraft. And as it turns out, the uh, the guy accusing them of this, uh, uh, many other people disputed his version of events. So uh, I would imagine they're innocent of of the uh, accusation. Um, but it sparked some really good discussion on social media about what's important and what's not. Uh, and a lot of people defended them saying, you know, well, it's, a, you know, they, they were focused on getting the patient off the airplane where they could work on her. And that's the important thing. Uh, the pack we took with it is that, yes, that is important, but it's not necessarily an either or proposition. 
that they could have taken care of the important things while still uh, uh, protecting her dignity. That's not to say whether they did or did not do that, but but it's possible to do that. And I think a lot of people miss that. And one of the things Mike per- pointed out was is that uh, you know at some point in your career you reach the level of mastery of your craft that not only are you not obsessively focused on doing the right steps in the right way and cognitively thinking about them, but you have mastered those steps to the point where you can focus on nuance now uh, because the rest of it is is uh, second nature to you. It's automatic. Um, and I was interested in hearing your thoughts and, and how we progress to that level of, of mastery of, of our craft. Um, how do we get to the point where our skills and our actions are so ingrained uh, that we don't have to make uh, the important things and the not so important things an either or proposition that they all come automatically? Yeah, I got to tell you, when you first brought this up and we were chatting about it a couple times before we recorded, I think that this is a really good topic when we think about our, our the development of our skills. You and I have been very, very critical on this show about how we go about learning in school and our cognitive development. And, you know, when we leave school, we think that we need to know everything there is to know about EMS, and we don't. Or a lot of folks don't do anything to increase their core knowledge. Well, mm-hmm. learning, is an ev- learning is not an event. Learning is a process. And learning is a continual process, and it allows our, our, our brain and it allows our behavior to change so we can become the best that we can, whether it's, whether it's cognitive knowledge of, of having the understanding of pathophysiology or mm-hmm. cognitive knowledge as to treatment of uh, a hemi block. And I'm not talking about a hemi block in a Dodge. I'm talking about a hemi block on an EKG. I think I think got a hemi. Yeah, so I just wanted to clarify that for you. But one of the things that we don't do as well is we don't grow our psychomotor skills as well. We have to remember that. In each domain of learning, when we talk about the cognitive domain and the affective domain and the psychomotor domain, there is an increasing complexity that we need to get to. When we first start learning a skill, we really kind of imitate that skill. This is what you need to do. Kelly, you and I, I mean, we're in the process of teaching EMTs right now. And, you know, it's very, very, I want to say daunting for me, but having to say, now take your gloved hands Open your fingers and put them behind the head, and now you want to pull them out, and you want to see if you have blood on your hands. And we're taking them step by step so they can actually learn the skill by imitating what we're teaching them or what they're telling them. Then from there, there's a little bit of manipulation. Then becomes precision. Then we get to articulation. Then there's, there's at the top of that psychomotor domain, there's naturalization, where this becomes second yeah. nature, where we're not thinking about it anymore. I'm going to say to you that, you know, probably now you don't even think about starting an IV anymore, do you? You're probably thinking about what no, you're no, doing no. after you try to get the blood off your shoes because you've not let, you've let this vein bleed out all over the place. But, you know, it's the same thing when, when you learn to drive a car. I mean, when you get into a car, I'm actually teaching someone to drive now, and I can tell that they are consciously incompetent of how to drive that car. They know that they can't drive that car, and they're Mm -hmm. learning how to do it. I I bet you didn't even think about driving to work today. And that's just because that psychomotor skill has become second nature. 
But I think that one of the things that we have to do, and I don't want to, I don't want to babble here uh, like you, but I think that one of the things <laughs> that we have to do is we've got to take ourselves through the domain of learning and that psychomotor skill to get to a point to exactly what you were saying. How do we get good naturalization of those skills? So I'll ask you this then, you know, Kelly, because I kind of started off with your IV skills. I'm going to say that you probably don't intubate the patient today the same way you did two decades ago. What was different about today in your intubating skills than it was when you put a laryngoscope in somebody's throat for the first time? Well, see, that's not really a fair comparison because I could always fall down a flight of stairs and accidentally intubate five people on the way down. Uh. Um <laughs> But no, no, my, no, my EMS, technique, EMS is a very egotistical business. I don't know yeah, if you know that. My, my technique is different. Yes. Uh, than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, uh, and, and the frequency at which I perform the skill is far less than it used to be. Um, uh, but I wouldn't hesitate to say now that I'm far more competent and capable of managing a difficult airway than I've ever been in my career, even though I do it less frequently. Um, and I, and you know, that, that comes with, with maturity in your profession and, and learning a, a degree of circumspection in, in how we apply our, our skills and our talents. But, um, I'm just, I wonder why it is, and it's not just EMS that I'm picking on. Uh, it's other professions as well. You mentioned uh, you're teaching your daughter to drive and, and uh, that she is consciously incompetent. She knows what she doesn't know. Um, why is it that so many people in a given uh, trade or profession rise to the level and stay there of unconsciously incompetent? Uh, to the point where they think they've got it. And they don't progress beyond that point. They have no idea just how shaky they really are. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I, and it was probably bad uh, um, production value, but I kind of sighed when you were asking that question because <laughs> I, I don't really know the answer to that. You know, I, I think that EMS has a problem with learning, with continued education. We take such umbrage in our career field to having to sit down for continuing education. To learn something. Oh, God, yes. But I don't know what the challenge is. If you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. And I know I can't do it. And to I'm say, waving my hands in the air like I just don't care. That's because, you know, but again, <laughs> but again, you're wrong. But it's still the yeah. point, though, Kelly, is we've got to understand why it is that we don't grow our knowledge. To me, it's a badge of honor that I can, I can, um, you know, I don't know, I understand the pathophysiology and I want to understand the pathophysiology. When I go into somebody's home and deliver care to them, they don't deserve anything, anything but my best. So am I okay with my best being subpar? But I think yeah. that to your question, you've got to be able to identify first that your best is subpar before you do anything to fix it. You know, there was a guy that uh, I worked with in Arlington, Texas, and he's, he was a guy named Jerry Young, and he's long past now, and you know, I think about him often, and I think about him for this reason. He, he came from the, the restaurant field, and he was a guy who worked uh, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and was making decent money as a restaurant manager. And when he got into EMS, it was like a dream come true for him. Now, this was a guy who knew his, his restrictions. He knew what he didn't know. But I'll mm -hmm. tell you what, one thing that I could say about Jerry is that if he came across something that he didn't know, 
the next time you met him, he knew it better than anybody else that you've ever met. Yeah, yeah. He, and, and that's a because he went home. The, the and, learner we should be. And he opened the Merck manuals, and he and he. This is, was before online. But anyway, the point is, is that that was one of the things that I admired about him and that I wanted to be able to do the same thing. If I come across and, you know, people out there, I said, you know, before I said hemi-block. Now, we know that hemi-blocks, you know, and how they happen or what they should look like on an EKG. But if you don't, you should be writing that down. And right now you should be online looking up what a hemi-block is and figuring out how you can tell that on an EKG. We don't do that. So, you know, going back to your initial question, I think the answer has to be that we've got to recognize that our subpar is subpar before we can do anything about it. And we got to stop thinking that we have the best knowledge and we have the best skill. And then once we don't realize that, we got to make it so. Kelly, in, in the beginning, I think you started off by asking me, you know, what is it that we have to do to grow our psychomotor skills? And I think I have an opinion, of course, but I know you do. So before I give my opinion... I'd really like to hear your opinion to see what you think and hear how uh, you would recommend growing our psychomotor skills. I, I think the problem, not just psychomotor skills, but our, our cognitive ability as well. It, it, it's it's uh, the problem uh, lies first and foremost with how we train and educate people, uh, and, and we we uh, we don't stress the critical thinking skills and the questioning. Um, that that is necessary to grow your knowledge and skills provider as a matter of fact we kind of discourage questioning you know uh, you have your protocols and your acls guidelines and and all these sorts of things that, that you follow this this recipe uh and you shall not deviate because you're not capable of thinking further than that uh and we need to start you know we've we've worked on dispelling that that dogma uh for as long as we've had this podcast but, you know, it occurs to me that, you know, early in your career, what your concept of, of doing a good job is, is, is when you sit, start that IV or you work that, uh, you work that code, you try to, you're still in your mind trying to hit every point on that National Registry Psychomotor Skill Sheet. You know, that, that's how you mastered it in class. That, that's how you gauged your performance and, and what was good and what was not good was, was by how thoroughly you were able to master that skill sheet. Right. And then when we, when we graduate, we get out in the field. Well, what takes the place of that skill sheet is the protocol. And the protocol becomes our new skill sheet. And we gauge our worth and our, our, uh, our skill as a provider how thoroughly and extensively we follow that protocol and that we don't deviate from it. Um, it it's a while, I don't know if it's becoming jaded or wiser, that we you have to reach a point in your career when you realize that the protocol is not always the answer uh, and that there's going to be times where you have to deviate from the protocol and that a skilled provider eliminates things from the protocol on a regular basis because they are simply not necessary or maybe even detrimental to the patient. So, you know, that reaching that epiphany as a provider um, uh, and, and, and really mastering your craft um, really requires you at some point to start questioning uh, what it is you've done all this time. Uh, one of my, I think the, the, the biggest problem is we don't get adequate feedback um, because we get out in the field and I work in a, a paramedic EMT crew combo uh, uh, system and, and that's what I've spent my entire career on. So when I'm working as a 
I'm working with an EMT by definition, someone less educated and less experienced than I am. Um, and they don't know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong necessarily. I'll give you an example. You know, I work with new EMTs and I'll say, put on the, the 12 lead electrodes and they just, just put them on haphazardly and string them across the chest. Uh, and I know that they were not taught how to put on EKG electrodes in EMT class. They were taught that on the job by paramedic, a provider. And, and if that paramedic doesn't know how to put them on, who's there on the truck to show them the, the actual proper placement? Or you go to transfer a patient out and they've got, the, uh, they've got a vena guard slapped over, a, uh, uh, slapped over a, an IV. It's obvious that they just put it on there because their focus was on getting a vascular access, not getting a good vascular access that will remain patent for a while and that's easily used by the hospital and uh, med surge staff down the line. Um, and when I correct these things, a lot of people mistakenly think that, that I'm being nitpicky and, and, and critiquing their, their worth as a provider when I'm just trying to show them a better way of doing things. Um, so my question is, is, is how do we get them there? How do we get them there without offending them, uh, without, without uh, you know, fostering the notion that we're somehow better than they are uh, and that I know more and you know less and you need to listen to what I say? How do we, how do we approach that whole deal uh, with trying to lift our colleagues up and, and help them reach a, a level of mastery without uh, making it sound insulting to them? You know, I, I think that there are a couple different, you know, questions in this is as we try to, you know, kind of figure out um, where to go to. I certainly want to get to the question about how do we increase our skill level, but I think you've just tossed a monkey wrench in the works when you say, how do we, you know, how do we now, uh, be able to give good, uh, corrective and constructive feedback to people without them feeling, uh, insulted or, uh, get defensive. I think one of the things that really has to go to first off is it has to go to your personality as the person who is giving the advice. So yeah. I was always one of those people, Kelly, that was seen as intimidating. Uh, people, Me too. Yeah, people would say that maybe I was arrogant or cocky, and I didn't really do anything to dispel that. But I knew as well that I couldn't just walk up to somebody and say, you know, the, the, the radio report you gave was just ridiculous because yeah. that wasn't going to be received well. But as I grew in my years of experience and maturity – I realized that I tried to develop a rapport with people differently from where, you know, I, I would say something like, you know, you had a really crazy call there. I mean, how, so how did things go for you? And really kind of asking them to where they would eventually come back and say, you know, so what do you think? And, you know, always preface it by saying, now, I wasn't there. And I'm certainly not here to be an armchair quarterback to you and say that, what you did was right or wrong, and and maybe I would have done the same exact thing that you did. Mm -hmm. But I think that we've got to be able to approach that with the with the um, with a humble demeanor, mm -hmm. and instead of walking up to somebody and, and uh, you know just kind of trashing them, I think you've got to try to be a role model. I think you've got to try to be that mentor, and we don't have that in our field. And yeah. I think that one of the things that we need to really try to understand is as well is we shouldn't be engaging in um, destructive 
discussions about our peers. Because yeah. you know that if I'm talking about Kelly Grayson with, uh, you know, uh, Sammy Lunchmeat over here, you know that <laughs> Sammy's going to tell somebody else that Chris Savalero yeah. was talking about Kelly Grayson. And then you know it's eventually going to get back to Kelly Grayson. And now all of a sudden when I go up to Sammy and start talking to him about his skills and how he handled that call. So I think that we have to do a lot of growing up respect our peers for the knowledge and experience they have and try to help them as best they could now uh, and i don't know if you want to jump in on that but um well well it it brings to mind now that now that you said that and and give me a chance to think more about it i I think the the war story approach you you mentioned is is uh uh probably a great way to to go about it you know get them to talking about their call uh and and it's kind of hard to be no condescending when when the conversation begins with so there i was you know um first on scene with that busload of hemophiliac nuns hitting the glass factory uh have you have you had have you had that call yeah man i tell you yeah i know nothing but a half box of four by fours and expired tube of neosporin i said to myself self this is the kind of call where legends are made (laughs) (laughs) but no it's but it, it is kind of hard when you, when you're sharing the war story kind of thing. I think we uh, we 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 sometimes neglect the fact that it can be educational. We, if you want to call them something more apropos, call them experiential anecdotes. You just, and and you know, that that follows that same principle when you do your debrief after every call. You ask the you ask your partner how things went. You always let the the junior speak first. Let the junior person speak first because their opinion won't be colored by anything that you said, and, and there, there's no peer pressure involved there. Um, and often they'll catch their mistakes and point them out to you um, before you could yourself. And, and that gives you the perfect opportunity to go, well, yeah, I know how you feel, man. Been on that. Let me tell you what I've done when I was in that situation. Uh, and, and, and now it's two colleagues collaborating and, and, and uh, uh, sharing ideas to improve each other rather than one know-it-all trying to tell another one how to run his call. Um, but, hey, you know, that's what I think. We've heard what Chris thinks. We'd like to know what you guys think. How do you approach that sort of thing where, where a, a colleague may be a little weak, they may be competent uh, and, and skilled, but they're not a master of their craft, and, and you want to help to boost them up to, uh, to the highest level? How do you approach it with your peers and your colleagues? Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, who I'm constantly trying to drag up to mastery level, This is Kelly Grayson. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.